CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19 and in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations. From a botched rollout of, of COVID tests to mixed messages and noble lies about masking to inconsistencies and politicization of social distancing and crowd gathering recommendations to school closure recommendations to policies and priorities surrounding vaccines and boosters, the CDC has had its share of controversies. The director announced plans to, quote, reset the agency by restructuring its communications team, changing its organizational structure, and emphasizing applied rather than academic scientific research. Where did the CDC fail and where did it succeed in responding to the COVID pandemic? Did the agency's leadership suffer from politicization and groupthink? Is the director's proposed reset enough of a makeover? The US Public Health Service created the Communicable Disease Center, CDC, in 1946, with the initial mission of eradicating malaria, which was endemic in the southern states. It subsequently in, in, uh, targeted such other diseases as smallpox, syphilis, measles, polio. And over the years, as its name changed in scope, its mission and budget expanded. The agency now seeks to control such, quote, epidemics as obesity, gun violence, drug overdose deaths, devising guidelines for treating pain, and even the health effects of climate change. Has mission creep engaged the agency in so many societal problems that it handles none of them well? Has this mission creep made the agency more vulnerable to influence by special interest groups? Should some or all of the CDC's original functions devolve to state and local public health agencies? The CDC's handling of this pandemic is certainly not the first example of the agency coming under political influence. More egregious examples include the infamous Tuskegee study that the CDC acquired from the Public Health Service in 1957 and the big swine flu vaccine push of 1976 that turned out to be completely unnecessary. Is it reasonable to expect an agency formed by the federal government, funded by Congress, and working closely with the White House during medical emergencies not to be political? Joining us to discuss these and other questions are uh, from, to my right, Ronald A. Bailey, who's the science correspondent for Reason Magazine and an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. Ari N. Shulman, editor of the New Atlantis and the New Atlantis Books, and he's delayed in traffic, but he will be here very soon. Uh, Dr. Martin McCary, MD, MPH, professor of surgery, at, in fact, uh, no, okay, professor of surgery at uh, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and professor of health policy and management at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. After we have our discussion, I'll take questions from the audience, including people viewing this online. Online viewers can submit their questions on the Cato event webpage, as well as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. Let me start out this discussion by asking each of you to give your so-called performance review of the CDC during the COVID pandemic. Where did the CDC fail? Where did it succeed in responding to the COVID pandemic? And what about the uh, CDC COVID test fiasco? Should the FDA share some of that blame? Did the agency's leadership suffer from politicization and groupthink? So let me start with you, Ron. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to, to be able to discuss this issue. It's an extremely important issue because there are probably going to be other pandemics uh, later in the century that we need to have better addressed than the one we had. But the CDC certainly did not cover itself in glory. I'm going to look at 
a few things that I've covered as a reporter over the last two years or so when this is going on. First of all, it was the testing failure that you mentioned. Essentially, I want to compare what happened to South Korea and what happened here. The CDC insisted on developing its own test, refused to allow anyone else to do it, failed to develop the test, and then prevented anybody else from doing it. But in contrast, the CDC in South Korea immediately, after they identified four cases, immediately called for uh, 20 uh, biomedical companies to come meet with them and develop tests, and within a week, they had a private company test that was rolled out immediately. South Korea covered itself in glory. Um, then the, we go to surveillance. The problem is, is because we had no tests, among many other things, and because of other data failures, there was no way for us to figure out where the disease was. Let me give you a case of what happened in, in, uh, in, in, in Washington State. Uh, there was a, a study done by Helen Chu, who was the, it was called the Seattle Flu Study, funded, by the way, privately, $20 million by the Gates Foundation. And she had collected a, a lot of respiratory samples from thousands of people in the uh, Washington State area. And that was one of the first areas where the disease was identified. She asked the CDC and the FDA, can I test my samples? Maybe we could find out if there's been uh, community transmission. They forbade her to do it. They said it was absolutely not allowed. You can't do that. Your tests have not been approved by the FDA. And finally, she just gave up and did it anyway. So on February 25th, after being refused by government, she finally did the test, and guess what? She found there was community spread. Uh, four days later, the uh, CDC and FDA said, oh, okay, you can do that now. That was, that was a failure as well. Uh, also, because of this lack of surveillance, we didn't, the, the government was focusing on the West Coast and, and people who had tra traveled to China and completely missed the fact that the spread was coming in from Europe and that this is why New York became the epicenter early on in the epidemic, because that's the source of, of, the, of the disease. Then one of my favorite things is modeling. The CDC should be able to have a capability of modeling the trajectory of diseases. Apparently they didn't. Eventually they started relying on a whole bunch of different models, uh, prominently, for example, uh, University of Washington uh, uh, Institute for Health uh, Metrics and Evaluation model. Uh, which you know, is a good enough model in a certain way. But interestingly, at the same time, this 26-year-old this data scientist from MIT, on his own, using his own money, created a, a model using machine learning where he compared his results to what was going on with all these other uh, models. And it turned out his was much more accurate. How, how much more accurate? At the time on April 1st, uh, the IHME model said that by August 1st, there would be 62,000 Americans who died of COVID. Uh, at the same time, the same date, uh, Yu Yanggu, who had developed the uh, COVID projections model on his own, at home, projected it would be 170,000 Americans would be dead by August 1st of COVID. So what are the actual numbers? 160,000 Americans had been dead by August 1st at that point. So the FDA, I mean, sorry, the CDC's modeling was, uh, and was a complete failure in that case. And then one final thing, and we all remember this, and, and there's a lot of confusion at the beginning, but they decided to treat the disease as, as basically a flu. And so uh, they poo-pooed the notion of aerosol transmission. They were basically saying, no, it's going to be mostly uh, touch. And we all remember we were cleaning surfaces like mad and all that. Well, it turns out, so by April, there were already suspicions that it was largely transmitted by April 2020, largely uh, suspicion it was transmitted by aerosols, but not def definitive. 
Uh, and but slowly but surely, uh, there was a, a group that approached the World Health Organization and said, we really need to look into this. The World Health Organization blew them off as did the CDC. Then in the middle, and then in July, another group of 239 experts from all over the world had an open letter saying, please, we really have to look at this aerosol transmission thing. The CDC finally said, uh, changed its guidance on aerosol transmission in May of 2021, basically a whole year later. So there are a lot of failures in that regard. And uh, one other final thing is, is that that politicization started really early because the agency wasn't, as far as I can tell, adherent to whatever it is the Trump administration wanted to hear. They basically uh, put, uh, decided in March to put Vice President Pence in charge of all messaging in that. And that, that began the politicization of this process from the get-go. The agency did not cover itself in glory uh, with regard to the, at least the initial stages of the pandemic. Thank you. Uh, Ari, what, what, what is your performance review? Uh, bad. <laughs> um, thank you for those comments, Ron. You're, you're covering a lot of what I was going to say. So that, that allows me to try to, I'd like to try to offer a little bit more of a synoptic view. I think everyone on the stage is going to agree that the, probably that the performance was pretty bad. I'd like to, to think about the nature of what went wrong and the explanations that we hear. Um, I think the most common explanation that you hear, especially from commentators on the right, is uh, essentially that the CDC and the public health establishment became captive to hysterical germophobia, that they were vastly overstating the severity um, of COVID, um, the fatality rate. They weren't telling people that it was mostly um, a disease of the elderly and so forth, right? They were excessively risk averse. And then you also hear a story about uh, woke institutional capture, um, there's obviously a great deal of truth in both of these stories, especially if you're looking at the CDC right now. I don't think that either of these are very good as explanations of what ultimately went wrong. And part of the reason for that is some of what we just heard from Ron, right? Which is, if you th these things are true starting maybe around April or May 2020. If you look back just a month or two before that, January to February 2020, you see almost some of the opposite behavior on each of these counts. Um, instead of a CDC, that seems... Uh, problematically preoccupied with the masking question and with getting people to mask. You see a CDC that's preoccupied with getting people not to mask because it says this is hysterical, it's irrational. If you listen to what they're saying, they're basically saying this is the sort of thing that xenophobes would want to do. This is being motivated by um, anti-China xenophobia. That was, that was something you heard a lot, subtextually and textually. Um, I don't think that the way that that a lot of the critics of the public health establishment are approaching this is, is adequately thinking about that, that very strange and weird surface flip that happened. Um, and it wasn't a fluke. I think something like this was bound to happen because you see the exact same pattern play out in a lot of previous public health outbreaks. The same exact thing happened, in fact, during the Ebola outbreak of 2014. I wrote this long investigative article on this for the New Atlantis. You had almost exactly the same debate about masking happening much less prominently and at a, at a smaller scale, but it was happening behind the scenes in the medical establishment focused on the question of what sort of protection healthcare workers who are treating Ebola patients should wear. And the CDC was doing the exact same thing then that it did for the initial months, which is that it was clearly extremely uncomfortable with the idea that masks should play any role in the protection uh, of healthcare workers. It was trying very hard to get um, doctors and nurses not to wear N95 masks, because uh, basically because it was preoccupied with public hysteria and with stopping public hysteria more than it was preoccupied with thinking about 
the best way to actually combat the problem that they were facing. They wound up having to do an about face on that during Ebola in the same way that they did during COVID um, when a, a couple of nurses in Dallas contracted Ebola from their patients despite having followed the CDC protective guidelines. Um, this isn't also just a problem of the CDC. You see this problem with a lot of other public health agencies. You can look back in decades and see this as a pattern. I'll talk about that a little bit more. But I want to say that uh, the, the underlying problem that we're seeing here is basically hall monitor behavior. I don't think that it is so much... Uh, a CDC that is irrationally germophobic, because that, that changes. It really is just a CDC that is preoccupied with not letting anyone outside of the agency decide or have control over anything. It's very worried about policing people's views that it believes are anti-science. It's worried about public hysteria. It's worried about this essentially kind of cognitive hygiene and um, compliance with the procedural norms of science. Um, you especially see this in the testing debacle right? You have a critical emergency where time is of the essence and the CDC is basically prioritizing. You have to go through us and you have to do this through us. Uh, just an, an incredible failure. Um, so I think that there's an important implication from recognizing this. Uh, a lot of the way that, that conservatives and people on the right talk about the nature of this problem is basically the people in charge of the CDC are bad. They are the wrong sort of people. They're hysterical. They're woke, etc. And so if we were to just get rid of the bad people and put our experts in charge, the right experts in charge, then maybe things would be okay at that point. I think that's a tempting view, and I think it's a very wrong-headed one, uh, because the more that you dig into the nature of these problems, the more you realize that, although yes, there is a lot of corruption, and I think a lot of bad motives at the CDC, what you should do in these cases is really far from, from straightforward. These kinds of conflicts that Jeff was pointing out about, do you want the CDC to be political or not? It's, it's not a straightforward thing to answer at all. Um, I think that there's a, uh, a lot of uh, tension and a lot of contradictions over what people are saying that the CDC should be, right? In some contexts you hear, well, they need to just stick to the facts. That's their job. They're scientists. They need to tell us the facts. And then in other contexts, we, we want to say, well, they need to fix the problem. They need to act quickly. Well, there's a really big conflict between those two things because when you have a fast emerging problem, the, the need for the action that you're taking goes far in advance of the certainty that you have available in the science. That's, you, know, you can see that in the testing of ACL, you can see it in a bunch of different, of, uh, different cases. Um, in my view, I think that the thing that, that we should be thinking about making the CDC into, and I think the, the kind of tacit consensus that you hear about and what people want is a fundamentally mission-oriented uh, organization, one that is laser-focused on problem-solving in the way that NASA at its heyday was, and in some senses still is, and in the way that the military is. Um, when you think about the nature of those problems, especially the nature of the military and the kinds of things that come along, the kinds of problems that come along with having a really robust and effective military, you'll see that all of those sort of politicization problems are something that has to be constantly managed and that there aren't simple fixes for, although I think there are ways that we can manage them vastly better than we are doing with our current um, CDC. So I hope to say more about that uh, later in the panel. Thanks. Uh, Dr. McCarry, we, I introduced you in absentia, so everybody, everybody's familiar with your credentials, and I, we were asking each of you to give your performance review of, the, of how the CDC handled this pandemic. Oh, I think the CDC did a good job. I don't really have much else to add. No, I, um, in all seriousness, <clears throat> uh, first of all, it's great to be with uh, Ari and Ron and Jeffrey here. I, I appreciated everything you've had to say throughout the pandemic. So thanks for being here and having me. 
you know, my journey with COVID was that at the time I was the editor in chief of the number two trade publication that physicians read, um, a journal called MedPage Today. So I felt a sense of an obligation to really understand what was happening since there was a lot of confusion before the pandemic in January, February, and early March. And to me, it was very bizarre that the news was covering this by having pundits give their opinion, people with no public health or scientific background. To me, I just felt like that's very dangerous. Um, so I took it on myself. I'm a surgeon by training. I've spent 90% of my uh, time and do in public health research um, in understanding, um, sort of evaluating the, the robustness of scientific methodology and recommendations that we make based on it. That's sort of the area of, of medicine where I've focused my, my work and challenging deeply held assumptions in the field that we inherit. So I felt like somebody must really have some good expertise on this. I know it's not the people I'm hearing from. So I led a bit of a personal um, uh, investigation to talk to the experts I really respect, which are not necessarily the experts that are good on TV. Um, there's no correlation between being well-spoken on television and really knowing your subject matter well. So I sought out uh, the people that I believe were the top virologists in the country, infectious disease specialists, and public policy people. You don't want somebody with just one dimension making all, calling all the shots, right? Let's be honest, we physicians don't know anything about unemployment or education. Uh, the um, modelers don't know anything about bedside care and the normal course of the trajectory. Um, people who don't understand the history of pandemic responses don't understand how the government has basically botched every pandemic in its history um, even in our lifetime, SARS, MERS, e Ebola, Zika, H1N3. So this is not really, governments just don't respond well to pandemics, uh, especially in the United States where they're so bureaucratic. So it was clear to me that something major was happening, that I really believed we, were, we, we already had community transmission, that we were being lied to when we were kind of told, don't worry about it. So I took it on myself. I went on the airways and I said, look, I've researched this. What is happening in Wuhan? What is happening in Northern Italy will happen in the United States. And, and that clip on CNBC ended up going viral, maybe in part because I'm from Johns Hopkins or I'm editor in chief of BetPage today. So um, that's when I found myself deeply involved here. And then I would say to answer your question specifically, sure, Mistakes were made, but we make mistakes in medicine all the time. I make mistakes in the management of my patients. People are very forgiving when you're honest. And when the answer should be, I don't know, and you give the wrong answer, that's where people get very frustrated. And that's where we are right now. So Dr. Fauci is head of infectious diseases at the NIH. His primary job is to fund research to answer questions in infectious diseases. That is his job description. He's not a public health official, never was. He is trained as a rheumatologist, has a background in immunology. So he has a job at the NIH to fund research rapidly. So when, 
when we had airborne community transmission all over this country, and he took the surface transmission model of influenza, that it was touching surfaces, pour gallons of alcohol solutions on your mail and groceries, wash your hands like crazy. That is a scientific unknown. Rather than rule by opinion, do that research in one of the NIH's biosafety level four labs that we spend a ton of money for and answer that question in 24 hours. Don't rule by opinion, rule by science. Almost every major question in the pandemic was a scientific unknown that Dr. Fauci did not fund the definitive research to answer in a timely fashion, but instead let linger as an open question as opinions filled that vacuum in the absence of data. And that's how we got the most politicized pandemic in world history. Almost all those questions could be answered with randomized trials, including yesterday's bivalent approval authorization of the bivalent vaccine by the FDA in six-month-year-old babies. Where is the randomized control trial? They're spending $1.2 billion on long-haul, long-COVID research, as I'll describe next week in a Wall Street Journal piece. Can't, they can't fund one randomized controlled trial of the bivalent vaccine. That is the ultimate failure of our public response was the failure to do the definitive research and fund it and answer the big controversies. Instead, they let them linger as open controversies. While, while telling people at the same time, these questions have been definitively answered and there's no room for doubt and you're a bad person if you doubt what we're saying. That's right, Ari. Comment on what either of you have said before I ask a question. I'll, I'll continue my comments if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And, and the, the thing that you're saying about the problem is not that they were wrong. Uh, public health people are always wrong during pandemics. It's just the nature of the, of the beast. It's being wrong, having told people uh, that you're absolutely certain and not saying we're not entirely sure yet. And then on top of that, suggesting in lots of different ways not only is this the correct answer, but uh, only bad people would disagree with this. Only people who are anti-science, only people who are, for example, on the masking question, xenophobic. That puts you in an incredibly bad position when, if you have to then go and change your position on that, as they did. And on top of that, if you've just read a little bit into the history of pandemics, you'll see that precise, that precise pattern specifically on the masking question has happened many times before. In fact, it happened in the last SARS outbreak. So uh, COVID is, the, you know, the scientific name is SARS-CoV-2. Well, SARS-CoV-1 was the SARS outbreak of 2002-2003. It was in several Asian countries, and it happened in Canada as well. And if you go read the Ontario SARS Commission, you'll read basically a play-by-play of exactly what was going to happen at a larger scale globally 20 years later on the masking question. And they just, they didn't learn it at all. And they had every opportunity to know in advance that it was going to happen. Ron, you, you wrote a piece uh, for Reason, I think it was in August, uh, about the mission creep. Uh, I thought uh, I was praising the CDC. Uh, and of course, as I talked about in my introduction, it, it's, it's grown from an agency that was strictly focused on, on communicable infectious diseases to I wonder if it is, is, is no longer a public health agency, but a public policy agency. Um, and uh, how much do you think the mission creep has, has been a factor in poor, the poor performance history of the CDC, not just in this pandemic, but in previous pandemics? 
I think you, that's exactly the problem. There are 15 different uh, agencies underneath the umbrella of the CDC, and the vast majority of them are focused on things we've already mentioned, like gun violence or obesity or so forth. And uh, my suggestion would be that they need to focus on communicable diseases. The one thing that that is a, a sort of an open access commons problem is, is that a disease comes in and there, you need a, 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 an agency that can find out what's happening, where it's happening, and then possibly come up with strategies. And that should be laser focused on that. Instead, they've created sort of an academic institution. Here, here's an example of what's happened. Remember there was a report, there was uh, wastewater testing for polio recently, it discovered that polio was being shed into various communities and, in New York. Uh, it turns out that that was first reported in the New York Times and the CDC got around to reporting it in its own papers a, a week later an article signed by uh, that was authored by 27 different people. When the New York Times is ahead of you on this, that tells you there's something wrong with your agency and they weren't doing the surveillance properly and they really need to focus on that. I have some suggestions on how to do that, but essentially shed a lot of the non-communicable disease agencies, put them in uh, occupational health and safety or, the, uh, or, or a new agency under health and human services but make them focus mission, as you said, make them focus, focus as a mission critical agency again. In comparison, uh, the European CDC, which was established, I think in 2002, is pretty strictly focused on communicable infectious diseases and doesn't actually make, it doesn't regulate it. It, right. it, it, it suggests strategies and leaves that to the member countries. Another, another model I would actually think is to look at what South Korea did. They did an amazing job initially addressing the problems of the disease outbreak there as well. And it was also mission focused. Well, you want to say something? Well, one, one sort of classic example of what Ron's describing. When the virus was spreading around the world, we didn't have a tracker. There was no central website. The CDC, with 21,000 employees, was unable to give us a website tracking the virus. It was one of our Johns Hopkins engineering grad students who put up a tracker that the world used. And when one grad student is doing this, and 21,000 people can't, that's a picture of how broken our bureaucracy is. My fear is now we're hearing calls to throw more money at the CDC. Now, they had one division of forecasting and modeling in the analytics department. And then it was generally considered they haven't really been um, you know, accurate or helpful as, as they, they haven't been optimized. So they created a whole nother department of forecasting, bringing in some really good people. And now you basically have two different groups at the CDC. Well, that new group that just formed missed monkeypox altogether and, um, you know, missed the RSV and influenza outbreak. So what do we do? Create a third modeling center? And I think this is a fallacy of people who don't understand government. Think, oh, more money for the CDC. That's good. No, that's the problem. Yeah, I'd like to, it's just a, a chorus of agreement on this data. I love it so much. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to add, to add on to that. Um, I've thought about this particular thing a lot. Uh, the, the fact that there was the one grad student at Johns Hopkins and then there was two or three journalists at the Atlantic who basically over the course of a weekend put together something that to this day the CDC has not done. They still don't have a COVID tracking panel that 
comes anywhere close to the capability of the Johns Hopkins uh, tool or the, the um, COVID tracking project tool that was created by the Atlantic. It's a really, really remarkable fact. And not only is it remarkable that that, that is the case, but it leads me to wonder why with these 21,000 employees, was there nobody in the elected branches of government? Why was there no President Trump, President Biden, someone in his cabinet, someone in Congress calling the head of the CDC down to his office and saying, what are you people doing? What are, what are you doing with your time? What do we have you for? I mean, that, that specific function of very clear and consistent data tracking. And part of the problem that these, that these outside organizations had to solve was that the data that they were drawing on was completely inconsistent. The standards were all over the place. There were poor data standards. When you went to the Atlantic's uh, COVID tracking project, they created a grading system for the quality of the data from the states that they were getting in part to incentivize the, the states to improve and make their data consistent. You think that would be like a core function of the CDC that everybody, no matter what they, you know, where they come from on this would think this is what we should have a federal government health agency doing for us. So why was nobody in the elected branches pressuring the CDC to do that? I think that's, that's both a, dis a failure of its own. And it raises this question about the nature of the politicization, because there were all of these problems of politicization that we're talking about within the CDC. But another way of thinking about the problem is that we had a real lack of politicization because you had the elected branches uh, and they all sort of have this uniform agreement of we're just going to let the CDC handle this and nobody who's going in and setting that mission for them and keeping them to task for being uh, on mission in the way that presidents do during wartime with the military in the way that presidents did in the 1960s with, with NASA getting to the moon. You don't have that attitude towards public health at all. On the data, as a matter of fact, uh, about a billion dollars had been uh, appropriated in 2006 for the purpose of creating a, a, an updated, modernized data collection system at the CDC, and it never happened. I was, one of my favorite little factoids about this was is that the CDC was getting its data still by fax. You know, I, there's uh, an article that posted on our event webpage. Uh, an, an author suggested that maybe to try to mitigate all of the politicization, Congress should consider doing what it did with the National Transportation and Safety Board. Back in 1974, the, the NTSB was moved out of the Department of Transportation and made an independent sort of fact-finding agency that investigated uh, accidents, analyzed what made them happen, and offered suggestions of how to avoid them in the future. But all of the policy remained with agencies in the Department of Transportation. The NTSB, therefore, its credibility was greatly enhanced. And uh, this author suggested that uh, maybe that's the approach we should take with the CDC, move it out of HHS and make it strictly devoted to gathering and surveilling uh, communicable infectious disease information, and of course, coordinating with state and local public health agencies so everybody's got up-to-date information, sharing the information among the agencies, but leave the policy decisions to other agencies within the Department of Health and Human Services and the executive branch. I'd like your thoughts about that. Uh, why do you want to say? Well, anything is better than the current <laughs> setup. Any arrangement is better than the current mess. Now, one thing I've learned from being close to the DC community is that top leaders in government will tell you that they often find their agencies 
unmanageable, especially now everyone's at home and zooming in. You've got 21,000 employees now, but you want to get some answers, you want some documents, you assign them a task, and they basically just don't do it, or they don't agree with it, or they suspect it's part of a, an agenda, or they don't agree with you know, what they, they're suspicious about some political mode, and they just don't do it. I've had leaders, top leaders in government, tell me who are heads of large agencies, including healthcare agencies, that say, you know, my agency, there's so many employees. I, I, don't, I can't even find out what some departments are doing. They won't even report up. I tell them to do things they don't. It's unmanageable. So that's why I think it's so ironic that one Johns Hopkins engineering grad student could do that website, but the entire agency couldn't. My, my um, concern is that the CDC is sort of not interested in doing research. They're interested in publishing in their own journal that's not really peer-reviewed, and it's too little too late, and a lot of that research is just unbearable to read from a methodology standpoint, wouldn't pass muster in any other journal. All the big COVID controversies could have been answered with really good research done promptly and funded well immediately. Masks, community transmission, aerosolized virus, um, the risk in children. Have any healthy children in the United States died of COVID? How many kids have died of COVID, if any? How can anyone so fervently, with so much absolutism, recommend the COVID vaccine in healthy young children when they can't answer the question, how many American children have died of COVID who have been healthy? Or are all the deaths skewed in those with special medical conditions? And that may be the subgroup that benefits from the vaccine. How many kids have died of myocarditis? We got the autopsy reports from Germany of people with sudden death after the vaccine, never went to a hospital, would have never been captured in the CDC's methodology of tracking myocarditis. It was found they had immune infiltration within days after the vaccine of the heart. They found home dead. Now, look, complications of the vaccine are rare, but that risk-benefit ratio changes by age. And if you don't know how many kids, if any child who's been healthy in the U.S. has died of COVID, how can you make a statement with so much absolutism? And so all these questions could have been answered with better methodology, natural immunity. You know, we were told it doesn't work. It's no good. Turns out it's better than getting the vaccine in the big study that came out. And there's been many studies on that. So that, that's, to me, the greatest tragedy is that we let these questions linger as open questions in the public forum to debate on television rather than fund definitively. And I can't, I can't mobilize a billion dollars or just like they did for long COVID research. I don't have access. We, could, we had trouble. We did the largest longitudinal study of natural immunity. Not that hard to conceive of. People infected in New York in the beginning of the pandemic, a year later, invite them in, test their blood, look for the antibodies, describe natural immunity, ask them if they've been infected. No one did that research. We did it ourselves, and we had to get funding from a private group to do it. So there, it's almost this weaponization of scientific study itself that was the real barrier in understanding COVID. You also commented, I've seen you comment about how when particular non-pharmaceutical interventions have been recommended, there have been no follow-up studies to see how they've worked. 
which in any in the, in, in the private sector, any if any business would make a change or an intervention in their usual policy, they would be monitoring it closely to see if it's helpful or, or detrimental. I have a colleague, uh, Brendan Fote, who wrote a, a terrific essay uh, during the pandemic called Science as Scorekeeping. And he was talking about this, this phenomenon, which is the way, the common way that people draw on and invoke scientific evidence. And his point is that the, the main thing that people were doing um, when drawing on scientific evidence during the pandemic was using it to score points for a particular point of view or against a rival point of view to say the evidence support, supports this view or the evidence contradicts that view. When in fact, on a lot of these questions, they were having to do that with what was just essentially very weak evidence to begin with. You could sort of score points one way or another, but in fact, a lot of these questions were just not answered to the level that we needed them to be answered. And the thing that people weren't talking about, uh, science was being, was being used as a sort of referee, right? That's this, this oracle that is outside of human affairs. It's actually a very passive view that's missing the idea that it is something that's under our control something that we can direct rather than that directs us. And one of the consequences of that is that you can push very hard for political reasons. We can say it's really politically important that we have a better understanding of how well masks work than we have right now, of how well uh, COVID transmits by air and of, of the vaccine complications. Um, there was a real lack of political urgency in directing and specifying the research that needed to happen and a, a real sense of deference to just let the scientific community do its thing. And if it gets around to researching this question, great. Whatever they come up with, we'll police public opinion based on that. Well, uh, it, how much of the, of the politicization of the agency uh, is avoidable? I mean, is it possible to conceive of an agency that's funded by Congress and, uh, has to, and coordinates with the White House to avoid being political, political forces? I don't, I don't I mean, know. I think the reason why defense contractors make a part of the F-16 in every congressional district in the United States. So anything funded by Congress, I think by nature, is going to have, be, have be susceptible. Again, anything's better than the current system. But I, I do worry about that sort of, uh, it's the centralization of decision-making. It's the interference with the scientific dialogue in social media it's Dr. Fauci and Collins, who are old friends. By the way, if you believe in diversity, as I do, we've had almost no diversity in the centralization of public health leadership. It is a very small group of like-minded people. There's very little of a sort of younger generation uh, representation where a younger generation of doctors were more pragmatic. We believe more in, in equity and social justice. And what you saw is this very top-heavy, you know, friends, Fauci and Collins, who've been friends forever. Dr. Fauci has been at the NIH for longer than most African presidents have served. And you, there's, there's sort of these intrinsic biases that come out. Everyone's an HIV researcher. All the public health leaders, HIV researchers. Now, they're good people. You're not bad because you study HIV, but they're all like-minded. We all bring our biases to COVID policy. I bring my bias. You know, I'm trained as a surgeon. We have to make decisions based on the information at hand. We can't just hem and haw. And so the biased public health officials brought from their uniform background in, in HIV is that with HIV, there was no natural immunity. 
And with HIV, they pounded over and over again, saying the risk is equally distributed in the population. Not so with COVID. 10,000-fold difference in risk between a young person and an older person with a comorbid condition. Um, I'm, we're going to be taking questions uh, in a few minutes. But before we do, I want to bring up an issue that was actually uh, communicated to me and I think all of us by uh, Captain Foxhall of the Society uh, for uh, uh, Public Health Journalists. And, uh, and I'll, in fact, I'll read what she wrote me. Over the last 30 to 40 years, there's been a trend in employers banning subordinates from speaking to the press without authorities' oversight often through a public information office. Having covered CDC before and after these controls, I have zero doubt these restrictions were key in the agency's failures. Given the deadly history of information control, the question is why wouldn't this be key to the agency's failures? So, Ron? As a science journalist, science policy journalist, I completely agree with that. Years ago when I was beginning, uh, I could call up Anybody at a federal agency, basically, you know, at the USDA, if I wanted to talk about genetically modified crops, for example, or, or at, the, uh, at, at, at the FDA for new treatments, and could get the person on the line who's the actual researcher and say, so what's going on? Tell me what's going on. And that slowly but surely began to clamp down. It began under the, the Clinton administration. It got worse and worse over time. And eventually, I've stopped calling because, because what happens is, is that you Yep. You identify the person you want to talk to, you call them and say, I have to get up with my public information officer first. Then the public information officer will say a week later, you can talk to them, but I'm going to be on the line listening. And eventually, basically, you, you had uh, the possibility of, of independent uh, information coming out of the agencies uh, to a journalist. It, it just died on the vine. So I think a lot of people have had this experience in, in the journalism world, and I think it's terrible. These people are public servants. They should be able to speak to the rest of us as they would any other citizen, in my humble opinion. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just echo that again and, and a lot of what I've been saying. Um, I, I don't know in great detail about this, this trend, but it's not surprising at all. I think it's a consequence of the nature of the decision-making structure and apparatus that we hear about with science and public health, right? There's this, um, I wrote this, this uh, essay for the New Atlantis about a year ago called "What Is the CDC?" and part of the part of the point I was trying to get at was all of these conflicting ideas that people have about what they want the public health agency to be, but it was also this sense of a vacuum of a power structure, right? Our our inability to recognize that the CDC is a powerful political actor because we have all of these different things invested in believing that it is not or that it shouldn't be. Even the big critics of the CDC seem to think that in the ideal world that we can build with the right experts in charge of the CDC at that point, it won't be a political power structure because we'll have removed the politicization from it. Well, I think that's just not possible. Um, when you th think in detail about some of the policy recommendations that the CDC has issued, like removing the mask mandate on planes, if you dig into the, the reasoning for that, I think it was the right decision, but it was a, a very complicated one that involved a lot of value judgments about different levels of risk, um, where the public mood was, what the goal was in terms of stopping transmission or reducing the severity of disease. Uh, fundamentally, what you'd need is the, an understanding of this as a political decision, one that has been arrived at by a, a statesman-like uh, set of judgments about what is best in the public interest. But what we have instead is a structure that says, this is all just science. There's somebody back there who's churning a bunch of spreadsheets, 
we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. We hit enter, and this was the policy outcome that it gave us, and we're just passing it along to you. That's the structure that people are told. That's obviously not true. And because it's not true, there's this huge incentive to hide the diversity of opinion that exists within the expert community. And that sort of squelching of internal dissent in order to present a unified front is an inevitable outcome of that mistaken governance philosophy. Well, and how much do you think, though, the control of information kind of promotes groupthink? I would think by not allowing the public to be aware that there are different viewpoints is part of the problem. Well, also, they're sourcing the doctors that are like-minded, right? So if they see themselves as activists, journalists, fighting an agenda that they believe is rooted in, you know, um, Donald Trump and his, you know, original philosophies on COVID, whatever the motivation might be. And I, I don't have a political bone in my body, and I'm not a partisan. But there was this sort of this reactionary sentiment towards COVID, right? We have to oppose everything that was originally suggested by you know, the initial administration. Well, what happened was they just blindly accepted everything fed to them by the government. In the site. Which they're still doing it. I just heard NPR report on the bivalent vaccine. You know, basically, Dr. Jaw gets up there at the White House press room with Dr. Fauci at Dr. Fauci's last press conference a few weeks ago. They say, everyone needs to get the bivalent vaccine. The data is crystal clear. We had actually zero data, zero clinical data. We had data from eight mice. Okay, so they get up there, so the science on this is crystal clear. And then NPR just says the same thing. Everyone is, you know, Dr. Jha says everyone should get it. it it's very eerie. It seems, it's just like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, the government said, hey, you know, Here's this piece of news. Go broadcast it. No one did their job to ask questions. Now, how is it Dr. Fauci has done, I don't know, 10,000 hours of interviews over the last two and a half years, and not a single person asked him the question, have you been paid by Pfizer? Not a single person. Do you today condemn gain-of-function research given what's happened, regardless of assuming you had no role in it? Don't you think it's a good idea to once and for all condemn it and call for an international agreement? Not a single hard question, not a single. It's just, oh, what are your thoughts on whether or not we're going to have another wave? Well, it's, there's a considerable partial risk and he's open-ended. He's very good on television, but not a single reporter doing their job asking the questions, hey, where's the clinical data to support the bivalent vaccine or the, the vaccine in babies? And I want to add briefly, I think that that is, a lot of that is because we have this view of uh, public health and of science agencies as uh, loft, loftily, ethereally removed from the political realm and from the ordinary sort of pressures and scrutiny that, that anybody in any other branch of government uh, would receive. I've, I've thought a lot about the analogy of the military. I think it's a really useful one for thinking about reforming public health, in part because the military is more trusted than public health is. It's much more effective in its, its mission orientation, but also the military and the intelligence communities, the military intelligence communities have had some extremely prominent and damaging failures over the last 20 and 50 years. And the country, I think, has done a much better job at being able to accommodate those failures and, and um, enforce consequences from them because the military is understood very clearly to be under political control and under civilian control. 
And when you understand that you have an agency that answers to you, you tell it what to do, it can make recommendations, it can tell you pros and cons and the rest of that, but ultimately you are the one who tells it what to do and it is responsible to you for failures. It's, it's ultimately less damaging to the political process because the political process is able to accommodate the fallout from that. We can look at what the political fallout was from Vietnam and we can look at what the political fallout was from the Iraq war. It's much harder to, to locate that and to understand it for the failures from COVID because we're all engaged in this sort of weird noble lie that there is no political location for political for, for public health decision making, that it's just some spreadsheet behind the scene that is making these decisions. Just as one, one thought about this though, on the politicization of what happened, I, I think for the example of the public health community, I don't know how they reacted necessarily, but when Trump said, I think we're doing too much testing, all of a sudden testing went by the by, started going down again. And that, that was political interference with a surveillance technique that a public health should have been doing. They should have been testing to see where the disease is going and how many people had it, what the variants are. I mean, it's shocking to me. We always had to find out what the new variants were with other countries identifying them first. South Africa had a better testing system than we did. That's crazy. I mean, I would just say the problem with it was that it was a really dumb and bad decision, not that it was a political one. It was it was stupid. Um, part of Jeff, to answer your political decisions are stupid. Yeah, but that's that's just the nature of it. And it's going to be the case. Whoever is making the decision, it's going to be the case. At least in that case, we understand. We can say that guy made this decision. That was bad. It was Trump who did it. And, and there's there's an advantage to that. Oh, I'm sorry. But, but no, I mean, if you're if you devolve most of the CDC's uh, policy making to the state and local public health agencies. And the CDC, like the European CDC, functions more as kind of the information source and center and clearinghouse and coordinates. Um, then you don't get into situations where one person, like the President of the United States, says we should do less testing. And that happens because that's really decisions made by state and local public health officials. And the CDC is just providing the information. They could, of course, give their insights and, and, and analysis, don't you think? Yeah, and I think the quote you read, um, Jeffrey, is so key to understanding this pandemic. When a leader in the American Public Health Association of Public Health Journalists says that basically tens of thousands of scientists across all these agencies have been gagged. They're not allowed to speak to the media. And then... That is a that is toxic. I mean, that is toxic. And science, that's sort of, you know, the ultimate golden rule is that we reserve the right to speak freely about what we believe to be truth. And so that I think was a huge part. Now, I got a chance to talk to so many people who work in the agencies, number two, number three level people at different departments. And I wrote a piece for Barry Weiss showing that there's not consensus there. When their director gets up there, there are people very high up who are so fed up. They're quitting. They're leaving in droves. They're pissed off. One of them told me that uh, they feel like they're watching a horror movie and they're forced to keep their eyes open, but they couldn't believe it. They can't speak. A journalist will reach out in the communications department at the NIH will say, we have a media inquiry for you. Tell us what you're going to tell them, and then we'll decide whether or not you can do it. I mean, my parents grew up with state-controlled TV. I think that's better than what, what we're seeing in the NIH. Um, I, 
we're going to be taking questions now from uh, the audience. And we have somebody uh, able to go around with a microphone or we just, yeah. Okay, great. So you raise your hand. Uh, one of our people come with the microphone and please uh, ask us to state, please uh, state your name and your affiliation. Uh, hi, my name is Joe Benning. I'm not affiliated with anybody. I'm, I'm retired. I'm trained as an economist and a public policy person. Um, so, so let me make a statement and answer the comment. Everything I've heard everybody say about the CDC, all you have to do is change the name CDC and call it the Fed, the, the military, any other agency. It's all the same story. And I think we have to, I, I want to answer this question. Instead of talking about institutional incentives, let's think about the incentives that are faced by individual politicians who have an incentive to control the flow of information so that so they can frame questions in a way that's about good guys and bad guys. It has nothing to do with science. It has, it's all about that's a bad guy, that's a good guy. He's either wearing a blue shirt or a red shirt. You know, that, that kind of nonsense that goes on on a daily basis. So co comments on that. I'll just say briefly, there's a, a group of scientists that um, I've become very close friends with through the, through the pandemic. They're at top institutions, the, the best medical centers across the country, really around the world. And we call each other and we hear about something like the bivalent vaccine was just approved for six-month-year-old babies. And we say, are you aware of any data? What do you think? Well, this is insane. They bypassed the technical expert vote at the FDA. They reamed it through we have these conversations all the time. There's a group of maybe 20 of us. No one ever talks politics in our group. And we have all come to these same scientific conclusions. There are a bunch of Bernie Sanders people in there. It came up you know, in passing in one conversation. There's conservatives or people who are independent like myself. So the question is, are we going to abandon the scientific process and have these political allegiances. American Academy of Pediatrics just kind of formally has taken this position now that, look, we are 100% on this party line agenda. We're, we, they've, they've engaged in formal tribalism. And so I think what we need to do is just get back to the scientific open forum of honesty, but we can't do that when the media only platforms certain doctors and doctors get bullied at their institutions. I mean, look at Jay Bhattacharya came out last night. He's, you know, one of the docs and he's was right fighting for children and schools to be open and Twitter blacklisted him. They wouldn't give him a blue check for verification. He had imposters putting other stuff that making it look like they were posing as him. He reported them. Twitter wouldn't address it. And it turns out there was an email between Dr. Collins at the NIH, the director, and Dr. Fauci calling for a quote-unquote devastating takedown of Dr. Bhattacharya. That's where I think we've poisoned the ability to have scientific debate. Just briefly, in my deep, dark background, I rarely confess this in public. I used to be a government bureaucrat as a young man. I got over it. But I completely understand what you're saying is because as, as someone at a lower level working for the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in the good old days, uh, we were deregulating natural gas and I was head of part of, I was part of that agency. In order to deregulate, we tripled the size of the staff. This is what government does. Um, was there a woman who had a question? 
coming along. Hi, thanks. Um, I could say a lot of things. I, I find a lot of things I just heard basically false. But um, Dr. McCary, let me start with you. Apparently reporters know more than you do because every, let me identify myself first. My name is Melissa Pollack and I'm a retired um, National Science Foundation employee, uh, a bureaucrat for more than 30 years. <laughs> um, apparently reporters know more than you do because every federal employee, especially um, well, at a certain level has to fill out a disclosure form every year. So the question about whether or not Dr. Fauci got funding from Pfizer doesn't need to be asked. If you want to know the answer to that, you have to look at his disclosure form. It's not public, that disclosure. It's a confidential internal disclosure. It's not public. I think it is. No, it's not. It was asked at the Senate. Well, well it, it could be found out. Okay. Um, so uh, anyway, that, okay, the second one is we, sure, we don't get children vaccinated because they're going to die from COVID. We get children vaccinated because they don't live in one bedroom apartments by themselves. They live in families and they have teachers who may not be in the same category as a child when it comes to catching COVID. Um, I know I, I went to my mother's assisted living facility and one day there were, it was full of grandchildren. Now, those grandchildren are not going to die of COVID, but it's possible that they could spread COVID. So that's why we get children vaccinated. As a doctor, don't you know that? Well, I would love to see the data that shows the vaccine is effective in children. We've never had that data. That data has a statistical significance. I've written about this extensively in Barry Weiss's piece. The statistical significance of the baby vaccine was non-significant. That was the clinical trial was a negative trial. But you're not answering my question. They live in, if, if, if a child has COVID and children do get COVID, we know that. And they live in a, in a family where there are susceptible adults. That's the reason to get them vaccinated. That's, there's an assumption there that the COVID vaccine stops COVID transmission. I would love that to be true. Can I ask, do you, do you think that most of the country understands that that is the reason that, that children and teenagers are supposed to get vaccinated? Or do they think that it is specifically for the benefit of the person being vaccinated? Public health officials have tried to convey that message. Um, I, you know, they also, another error I heard is that the conveyance of uncertainty wasn't done by the CDC. False. Um, You may not have heard it, but I heard it. (laughs) Um, So I'm just, do we know it or not? People should know that. That's why we get children vaccinated, not because they're going to die from COVID. They're probably not, but they may live with people who will or who will end up being hospitalized. And, And the fact that you're not getting that message out is a real disservice to the public, I think, because you're a doctor. I mean, you know, that's, that's this is, not understandable. This is the discussion I welcome. We should be having uh, nationally. I love it. I'm glad you're voicing your opinion. I personally have never seen data that the COVID vaccine stop reduces transmission or that it even is effective in young children. If, if it is, uh, then what we have to do is balance the effectiveness with the number of kids who are harmed from myocarditis. Do you know the incidence of myocarditis in children? I've I've read about it. And what I've read about it indicates that um, most people recover from it. Um, It's not a fatal condition. 
And I've looked at the data. The data just don't support what you're saying. So one in, one in 5,000 kids will develop myocarditis. A recent study of troponin leaks, which is a molecule in the heart that gets released in your blood system when the heart is injured, found that 3.5% of people after the vaccine have a subclinical troponin leak. That's, a, that's the test we see elevated with heart attacks. One in 5,000 young males will develop myocarditis. In the New England Journal of Medicine, one in 283 myocarditis um, individuals died. Now, have kids died of myocarditis from the vaccine? That's where the data is not as clear as public health officials downplay it. And I would love to see the data. Any, anything else? Uh, I, I want to get on to some other questions. But is there anything else on the panel? I'd like to add in one, one additional thing, which is that the, both the medical ethics and the politics of, um, of using stopping transmission as a reason for vaccination, and especially of having children play a role in that rather than adults who understand that, that, the re that that's the reason that's going to happen. It's a lot more complicated and, and fraught and contentious because the, the ordinary reason for vaccination is that you are providing a medical intervention to a patient who themselves will receive more medical benefit than harm from that, from that intervention. I think that adding on the reason of trying to protect other people is a perfectly good one. And I think it is one that, that adults who understand that reason should do. I think it is a reason that we should all get vaccinated. But children are not capable of understanding that. And I don't think that it's been clear to the public that that has been the main reason for children to get vaccinated. So it is understandably much more contentious, even aside from the question of, of uh, whether the science is there to justify that rationale. If somebody thinks the bivalent vaccine should be authorized based on data from only eight mice, that may be reasonable. Maybe we're dealing with something so rapid that we don't have time to do the clinical trial. I, I'm not, I don't have that view, but that could be a reason. But that's one view. That's an opinion. There are other opinions. And what we are told is that, look, this works. Don't ask questions. Don't ask for the data. And if you have any questions, that's misinformation, and we got to shut you down. I'll just say I will take any vaccine anyone wants to give me. So, there. Um, Dr. Ruth, I'm going to take a question from somebody uh, watching at home. Dr. Ruth Collins says early on in the pandemic, the Wharton School generated equations about the loss of life versus the damage to the nation's economy. This is, to my knowledge, was not properly acknowledged nor discussed. Why was that the case? It, interestingly, I, I, I recall looking at that a while back, and that was done on the value of, of, of lives. There was another study that I was intrigued by, the Mercatus Center, which is generally considered to be somewhat uh, libertarian in its focus, did a, a study early on in, in 2021 about the COVID suppression uh, uh, policies that took place at the beginning of the pandemic. And that study basically concluded that the suppression studies cost about $400, $400 billion in lost economics value of various sorts. It was value production that we're using, not five saved. And uh, at a benefit of perhaps as much as a, a, a trillion dollars. So early on, they their, their at least economic analysis said that the initial COVID suppression policies probably were, if, were not a net loss, but may have been a, a considerable benefit. 
then of course you can question if you needed to keep going and, and the, as the losses accumulated over time. So people were doing these economic analyses and subsequent ones uh, that I'm aware of found that, the, that ultimately the costs were greater than the benefits. But at least initially, the Mercatus Center found that the, the benefits were probably outweighed the costs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back from the specific as I've been doing a lot and, and trying to think about the general, the general question that's being asked here. I think this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of the question of the politicization of public health, right? Because very clearly that, that question that's, that you're asking needed to be considered in a much more tangible and serious way than it was. Was it really up to the CDC to consider that question? Do we want the CDC to be the one who is deciding that? Here again, I think the, the military analogy is a really useful one. When you're going to war, you want the military to be the one to answer the question about the economic costs and the political costs of going to war. Well, clearly you need somebody who's making the decision thinking about that, but it probably shouldn't be up to the military to, to do that. Um, and I think in the, in the same way, we have this, you often hear this sort of charge of, you know, well, the public health community was, was so cautious about medical questions, but they had no caution about uh, the economic costs of lockdowns or about the costs of school shutdowns, et cetera. Well, those are largely not medical questions. You, you kind of want an agency that comes in and is a little bit bloodthirsty and saying, if you want to laser focus on this problem, here's what you need to do. And then other people who are in the room who are saying, well, I'm laser focused on this other problem. If you do that, you're going to have this trade-off and somebody else who's making the decision. And that, that basic structure is clearly lacking. It, it, but it's lacking for another reason. The politicians find hiding behind the CDC very, very useful. They're basically saying, well, I can't do anything about that. You know, because we don't want all these lives lost, I'm just doing what the experts say. That's been one of the, the really funny continuities that you find between what are supposed to be two rival camps is that they, they both in different ways say, well, I can't really do anything because the experts are in charge. President Trump says that because, well, my hands are tied. It's the deep state. I don't have any control over it. And President Biden says that positively. Well, I wouldn't want to make the decision here because Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins should be making this decision. There's this unanimity about that. No one wants to take responsibility. Another reason why it should be as much as possible these decisions, in my opinion, should be devolved to state and local public health agencies who are dealing with their realities on the ground, which may differ from region to region. So what really should be done is the best information possible with insights and advice should be provided to these agencies, these local and state agencies, and then they should act on it. And internal, as you mentioned, the political leaders in, this, in, in those local communities also should have oversight. I, I think parents in America have a right to be pissed off when they found out that the CDC's school guidance document was edited by the teachers union before it was made public and those edits were incorporated. And Let's be honest, it comes from an administration, it comes out of an administration that is very close to that union. So if I were the, um, advising the director of the CDC and there was a message to ensure that the teachers union were reviewing this, I would have resigned saying no, we're scientifically independent. I don't know what Congress can do about that. You can't really legislate ethics in your job. I called for lockdowns. Remember, I was out there sounding the alarm and it's you know documented i was out there sounding the alarm when dr fauci was kind of saying don't worry about it days before the lockdowns he said on a sunday morning talk show 
the most dire warning he gave, and that is he said, one of the reporters asked him, what's the bottom line on what we should know about COVID? And he said, if you're an older person right now, I would not go on a cruise ship, particularly if you have a comorbid condition. And we're thinking, what? We are about to witness this massive epidemic, and this is all you're saying? Um, speak up. Speak up. You know, And so after we had the lockdowns, it was clear to me how we weren't seeing cancer patients coming in. Kids were not getting their child immunizations as they should. And so it was clear that this was having a, a real toll worst on minority children and children from poor communities. That is, go to East Baltimore. They were not long in, logging into Zoom. And when after 18 months of school closures and it was time to show up in class, guess what? A lot of kids never showed up again. So it was clear to me that we had to learn to live with COVID. And so I wrote a piece in the New York Times a few months into the lockdown saying we have to have a semi-open society. We can't stay hunkered down. That was back when the New York Times was interested in other points of view. And in that piece, I basically said those who, um, and at that time, those who had COVID were not getting reinfected with severe illness. Let them live our, their lives. And when we got the vaccine, have people who are, don't have natural immunity get it first to save more lives. And all of that was basically seen as against the status quo at the time. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about the vaccine rollout. Again, uh, in other countries, they had different sets of priorities. So, for example, in Europe, I think it was in the UK, they, first of all, they put priority on elderly people and people in, home, in, in, in rest homes, elder homes. But also they adopted this uh, first dose first approach because there was a limited number of vaccine produced so far. So they said, we know we get a certain amount of immune memory and protection from the first dose. Let's get as many people that first dose as possible, and then we'll worry about the second dose then. And if it turns out they get their second dose eight weeks instead of after four weeks, so be it. At least everybody's getting some. In the United States, and on the other hand, they held back so that you got your second dose in four weeks, and other people got nothing while you know, well, the people who got their first dose were waiting for their second dose. Now, in hindsight, it looks like the U.K. idea was the right idea. Save more lives. Yeah. I'll, I'd like to add something into this. Um, a lot of what I've been saying on this stage and in a lot of my writing, I've been, a lot of what I've been trying to do is to respond to some of the critiques on the right and to, to counsel people that we need to moderate our expectations about how pure we can ever expect public health agencies to be and to say that these kinds of problems of politicization are intrinsic to the nature of uh, of the, the interface between scientific uncertainty and having to make decisions that are intrinsic to public health and so forth, trying to move people in that direction. But the flip side of that is that um, part of what a well-functioning expert community has is a certain sort of measure of self-respect and disciplinary honor, a sense of, um, of kind of pride in the work. There's different analogies you can draw in here. I sometimes talk about the analogy of a car mechanic, right? A car mechanic is a kind of expert who you, uh, who you are drawing a service from somebody who you want to defer to, to an extent, but who you also have to check because they could, they could take you for a ride because they know better than you. And part of what you're looking for is a sort of sense of somebody who has a, a honor in their craft, who's going to um, try to speak frankly to you, try to sound out uh, what it is that you want, 
but also somebody who's going to be capable of acknowledging mistakes, um, who recognizes when things go wrong. And one of the big problems that I think you find in the culture of public health right now is that there is a, a victimhood mentality. You see this a great deal with, um, with the defensiveness around Dr. Fauci and around Dr. Collins. I wrote a New York Times piece critiquing the legacy of Dr. Fauci a couple of months ago, and the response to it was really extraordinary. It was, it was a sort of, how dare you, this, this poor man, he's done so much for us, and how, what a bad rap he's gotten. Yeah, he, he was subject to a lot of really um, you know, ridiculous and, and hateful stuff, but that's the nature of having a, a political leader. And Dr. Fauci functioned in this country as a political leader. That kind of response to a political leader is inevitable. And the, the kind of attitude that we see is the sense of that we owe something to public health leaders. We owe them, fundamentally, it is us who owe them thanks and deference, and not that it is them who owes us something, that, that they have a mission and a responsibi- responsibility to fulfill something to us. And one of the signs of that is, a, a, I think, a pretty significant lack of, uh, of contrition and reckoning that we're seeing now over the mistakes that were made. Yes, you got this statement from the CDC and from Rochelle Walensky, we're going to improve communications, blah, blah. Um, but there's, there's been no falling on the sword. There's been no, uh, no real public reckoning over the kinds of things you're talking about, about the internal meddling. And yes, that is politicization in the process. Um, and the general sort of excuse for the mistakes that were made early on has been, well, what are you going to do? We didn't really know. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that's a very significant cultural problem within the public health community. Of course, they're supposed to know. That's what we expect them to do, is to find out. If my particular thing is testing and surveillance. I think that the agency has to focus on that. And if, if there's one thing that we might do that's possible that Congress is actually considering, that would be Prevent Pandemic Act, which supposedly will help the CDC come up with a real-time data collection system for su- surveying and surveilling uh, infectious diseases in the future. Given the fact that a billion dollars was appropriated in 2006 for the same purpose and it didn't happen, maybe I'm, I'm now one of those people spending bad, you know, good money after bad, but I think it's something that really has to be focused on in order to be able to know when the next thing hits us sooner rather than later. Ari, I take it you're not very impressed with uh, Dr. Walensky's proposed reset Oh, it was so lame. I mean, it was, it would have been better for them to just not release it at all. It was, it was these very surface level, we're going to shuffle around this bureaucrat to that. And maybe we should make some decisions instead of just, you know, uh, listening to people's research, better comms. That's the big message of everything is, oh, this was a big science communications failure. Sure. Yes. That, it was that and a lot more. <laughs> Actually, she said our, the, our response as an agency to the pandemic was problematic. In other words, the prior administration made a lot of mistakes. And the reality is the mistakes were universal. They, they were at the agency. It's not one party. It's not your, when your guy that you like is in the White House, everyone else is doing everything wrong. If we can turn off those echo chambers and just look at the response, look, for example, at the practice of not allowing loved ones to see their dying loved ones in the hospital. A human rights violation. One of the cruelest things you could do is tell a teenager they can't go say goodbye to their mom. Everyone was on board with that. All the hospitals, all the hospital associations, group think, hospital administrators, infection control people, public health officials, Dr. Fauci, everyone was on board with that. 
And that, looking back, that was one of the cruelest human rights violations. We could, who am I to tell a daughter or a son, you can't go say goodbye to your mom on a ventilator who's dying of COVID? Who am I to say you can't accept that infection fatality risk, which is comparable to that of influenza for a young, healthy child? So there's, the, the group think hurt us badly during COVID, and everyone was in on it. It's not just one party. Um, uh, another online question from person anonymous. Um, I've read somewhere that there actually was a detailed pandemic plan already developed sitting on the shelf before COVID struck and that the Fauci Collins regime decided to ignore its conclusions, which amounted to no mass mandates, no shutdowns. Can a panel confirm this rumor? There were a couple plans. Uh, uh, Bill Frist, who's a doctor who served as Senate Majority Leader after SARS, came up with a detailed plan and even predicted that we were going to see another infectious pathogen likely emerge out of Asia or Africa, he said. Um, we kind of got lucky with the other two coronaviruses that caused severe illness in humans. There's only been three in human history that we know of. SARS, MERS, and COVID-19. By the way, SARS and MERS both spread by airborne. Why did this third coronavirus suddenly switch to surfaces? So a lot of these hypotheses needed good scientific debate, and they didn't get it. It was ruled by opinion instead. There is my understanding, and I, I have to be more fact check on this, is but there was a, a comprehensive plan that had been developed under the Obama administration. And uh, essentially, the first year, as I understand it, the Trump administration decided to deep six it, that it, that it was simply ignored. It, it had been devised, and uh, people had that available to them. And I don't know if it would have worked or not, but uh, the uh, CDC was clearly playing, uh, you know, basically uh, playing, the, playing it by ear as opposed to having any comprehensive plan when this uh, first burst on the scene. Uh, there's another question in the back. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie Wachtel. This has been a great discussion, and you've hit on all of the points. I think it should be discussed. I might add the lady sitting in front of me seemed quite energized with your responses. I would be equally energized in support of what you all have said. Now, we all know I'd like to continue the military act analogy. We all know there's such a thing as fog of war. But now that we have, to some extent, gotten away, finished at least phase one of COVID, I do think it's possible to evaluate everything that went on. And there are so many multiple failures. It now seems more and more the evidence rolls in. It was simply counterproductive, counterproductive medically, counterproductive in terms of education, small business, and one that hasn't been discussed, but I, is significant to me, is really, really major weakening with the overall U.S. finances. This was like $7 trillion of additional debt and certainly responsible for the inflation that we're seeing now, as well as a big change to the labor market. Plus, of course, everything that was done, most people aren't aware of it, but the damage to scientific credibility in the First Amendment is perhaps the most appalling piece of it. 
So if we follow through the military analogy now, so maybe we have Vietnam and it's possible with the help of the Republican House to get some of these facts out on the table, not in an accusatory way, but just now we've been through this. Let's evaluate it. Is it possible in the future to have red teams could say counter prevailing in terms of developing policy and would also be integrated with something like a cost-benefit person, a non-science person to be looking a little bit more at real-world consequences? I don't know whether that would work. But obviously what should be happening is the expert community should be dealing with this to the gentleman in the middle who sounds like you're not so much of a right right-wing person that you can out discuss that with them? Is that a, I, can, you, can you get the expert community to rally? What Jay Batachera says is that uh, every, no one can say boo because they all have to get their grants from NIH. So really it's very politicized from right at the root. Thanks for the time. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in, in what you just said. But the one I'd like to respond to is the, the red team idea. I think that's a really great idea. It's something I wondered a lot uh, about throughout the pandemic. I mean, sort of early on, I think a lot of us had this, this vision in mind. Like, if there's a pandemic in a movie, you imagine there's like a mission control bunker, like deep inside some hill in Wyoming. And there's a bunch of guys sitting around and they're like, all right, this is what we're looking at over the next few weeks. Deploy this, deploy that. And it's it was just laughable. It clearly became quickly became laughable that that kind of idea. But one of the things that you expect in that sort of scene is a, a scene, right, where you have the president at the table and he has like three advisors in front of him, and one of them saying, "You have to do this. I'm absolutely certain about this. You got to shut down the country. You got to do all the rest of this stuff." And you have another guy who says, "This guy's absolutely full of it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I went to Harvard. Whatever. I have this point of view. Whatever the views are, you want there to be that scene where you have." people who are arguing different point of views who are themselves experts, because that's what actually happens inside the expert community is it's very rare that you have real unanimity and real consensus about anything that matters for public policy. You usually have really strong rival views of thought and you want a way to have a process that preserves that distinctiveness in a way that presents it to the political process and presents it to the people who are going to make the decisions and allows those people to make the decisions. And I think what you have instead is a sense of the scientific process itself, where all of this diversity of thought exists, is also the one that needs to boil this down into one single view, which is going to become the actual policy. And when that happens, you, you incentivize having only a single point of view that is presented to, uh, to the decision makers that is shorn of all of that sort of diversity and that maybe has had a lot of political tinkering happening before it gets to that point. Um, so the red team is a useful way of getting at that point of, yeah, there is a real rival diversity of view within the expert community, and that is not being represented within the, the political process right now, I don't think. Um, anybody else wants to say anything? Uh, I, I'll, I'll just say that in academic medicine, you are basically dismissed if you have a different point of view than Dr. Fauci. Basically, even Lena Wen who is um, a Washington Post writer. I don't think anyone would accuse she her. She president of Planned Parenthood as well? She was president of Planned Parenthood. I don't think anyone would accuse her of being, you know, right wing. I mean, but, she, and she writes for the Washington Post. Um, you know, I respect uh, Lena. I have had different 
points of view on some things. But even she was dismissed from the American Public Health Association annual conference from giving a talk to the entire body because she had said something along the lines of, we have to learn how to live with COVID or move on or something. And it's like, you are not allowed to have any other opinions. And that's where we're in trouble because when I have thousands of doctors from around the country reach out to me and say, thank God you're saying that. I don't recommend a booster in teenagers like Dr. Offit had said, but I can't say anything. I get labeled anti-vax. You become a pariah. I'm up for promotion. I need NIH dollars. By the way, all of us in, in academics get a big boost when we get an NIH grant. All of us. I've applied for NIH grants during the pandemic. So to say the NIH has been a complete failure during the pandemic, it's very challenging. We did a study looking at the NIH funding in the first year of the pandemic. In 2020, the NIH spent two 2.2 times more money on aging research than they did on COVID research. We published this in DMJ. The average time to give the researchers a grant to study a COVID question after they gave them the notice of award was five months to start the study. So it was a complete failure. They were unable to pivot. It's very difficult to say that our entire um, health research infrastructure funding is problematic. And by the way, COVID just exposed it. We've had problems before. There's no very almost no research on food as medicine and environmental exposures that cause cancer. It's all laboratory-based problems. Maybe we need to study more um, effective interventions in the community. Maybe we need to work on school lunch programs rather than just bariatric surgery and obesity-related hormones. Maybe we need to talk about cooking classes for people with diabetes instead of just throwing insulin at them. This is a new way of thinking that many of us want to see. We want to see research move in this direction, but it's the same old guard in the medical establishment at the NIH that we're challenged by. Uh, we're running out of time. I want to ask one more question from a viewer uh, on the internet, anonymous again, but it makes whoever it is made a very good point. Uh, a major re reason the National Transportation Safety Board is effective is their size. They have 500 employees. They're also focused on a few issues, primarily investigating plane crashes. By comparison, the CDC is huge and has no clear focus. Also, their employees tend to move within the CDC rather than developing long-term expertise. Anybody want to comment on that? I think it's a very good point that was raised. No? Okay. I mean, I agree. I agree. It's yeah. a good point, yeah. Um, we got just a couple minutes left, so uh, I'm going to give each of you an opportunity to kind of get some wrap-up comments. Uh, uh, basically, the agency needs to be slimmed down. I think that uh, passing the, what I said, the uh, Prevent Pandemic Act would be possibly a way to go, trying, because data collection is absolutely key, because if you're flying blind, you don't know what you're going to have no way of deciding what to do. And I'm, I'm really thinking that uh, the agency completely failed on that at the beginning. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, but really, it has to be slimmed down, made mission-focused. Some people suggested that maybe a model, and I'm not endorsing it, but would be the U.S. Public Health Service, which is more mission-driven than the CDC, as a possible bureaucratic model that might be more effective. But it's clearly didn't, it failed us this time, and we should not allow it to continue uh, as it is. All right. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't have any grand answer to what should happen. I wish I did. Um, you know, you'll, you've heard me on stage and, and in my writing, I also kind of tried out different sort of analogies for what we can draw on here. It's very clear that there needs to be a clear mission orientation. I think it's also clear that slimming the CDC down to something like the mandate of the NTSB, um, that's probably not going to work because we need something more than just information and investigation. There needs to be a real I think it's inevitable that you're going to have to have um, a lot of policy decision making or at least recommendations happening within public health because that's that's you need it to be action oriented if it is mission oriented. Um, maybe that means that you need it to be fragmented into several agencies so that you can avoid that float and each one can maintain its separate mission. I don't know. People who understand government structures better than I do can have ideas on this. I'll, I'll, all I know is that we have models that we can draw on elsewhere in public life and in government life where the interface between um, political and value decisions and experts, we are able to manage it fruitfully, not to solve it, but to manage it. And where um, government agencies with a mission orientation that is very important, but also very dangerous um, has been successfully done. Think about um, the scientific crash programs during World War II that developed the Manhattan Project, uh, the, the atom bomb and radar uh, you think about NASA during the 1960s, and you think about the way that, that this is managed within the military. We do have these models that we can draw on. Uh, we just have to sort of figure out which one, which one we need, and the one that we have right now within the CDC is very clearly not it. Uh, there were many mistakes during the pandemic. Um, closing schools by far was, was the worst. We affected a voiceless population that does not vote, 50 million healthy children with almost no data, and we pushed boosters and young people with absolutely no shred of data. The FDA's external advisors that routinely meet and vote before authorizations was bypassed. They were told that we are not meeting, you're not voting on this one. They reamed it through anyway. The two top vaccine experts at the FDA, longtime career respected vaccinologists, including the head of the vaccine center, both quit in protest over political interference with the boosters and young people authorization. People are very forgiving if, if public health leaders and physicians are just honest. I think people are hungry for honesty right now. Even with this origin of the virus, it's pretty clear it came out of the lab. It's likely manipulated. Um, two top virologists in the U.S., told that to Dr. Fauci in the emergency meeting in the end of January 2020. They both told him they believe it's likely from the lab. It's time once and for all to ban all gain-of-function research internationally forever in perpetuity so this never happens again. And everyone likes to peg what you say as, oh, are you on my political side or their political side? I've been pegged to both sides depending on you know, what the moment is or what we believe the truth is scientifically. Let's put all that aside and allow people to speak up freely, namely the many thousands of scientists at the NIH and CDC and HHS who have been gagged from speaking to the public. That is probably the worst poison in our government that persists today, a problem that we can fix that we have not yet fixed. Well, thank you. This We could go on and on to such a fascinating topic. I'd like to thank our viewers online as well as everyone here. Um, for those of you online who came in late, this event is, is being recorded and will be archived and, and can be viewed within a matter of 
probably less than 24 hours on our Cato website, cato.org. I want to thank all of our uh, panelists for being here and thank all of you for coming. Lunch is being served uh, outside uh, for those of you who would like to stay for lunch. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks.